Good morning to everybody. Glad to be here with you and uh, glad that we got a great start last night. I wasn't able to be here. I was with my son uh, watching him play ball, but I trust it was a good time in the Word. And I'm excited uh, to be able to spend a little time this morning just thinking about marriage and family, especially in the early years of life. I wanted to begin just by reading uh, a little quote from an early, you might say, influential leader in the 20th century. He says this, No horse gets anywhere until it's harnessed. No steam or gas can power anything until it's confined. No Niagara is ever turned into light and power until it's tunneled. No life ever grows great until it's focused, dedicated, disciplined. Those... Uh, Sentiments are echoed, certainly by many other leaders throughout the 20th century or even in our own time. That idea that, that there has to be, if you're going to achieve a goal, if you're going to accomplish anything, there has to be a sort of a focusing in on what is important and a discriminating out what is not. A confining, a setting of boundaries of sorts. Success, we might say, in every endeavor, whether athletic or business or spiritual, involves certain restrictions. It involves certain priorities. And when you don't have that focus, you might yearn for success. You might dream of maybe glory, but it's not likely to happen. An athlete might imagine what victory looks like, but if he doesn't put in the time and prioritize the necessary things, it's unlikely he'll ever taste that glorious day. You may remember Paul uses uh, uh, that kind of a metaphor, a, an athletic metaphor, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this at the end of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 9 I do all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with others in its blessing. Do you not know that all are in a race, are running for the prize, but only one receives it? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. And so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see Apostle Paul, and he's using this analogy of uh, athletic contest and uh, spiritual things, this, this equating of the two. And he's saying that I want to be one who feels and experiences the full blessings of the gospel. Everything that it is. And the last thing I want to do is be somebody who's gone through my life preaching to other people and then finding myself at the end disqualified. All of this talk about missing the goal, coming short of the prize, being disappointed with the outcome, not winning the race, all because you didn't make the right preparations, all because you didn't take the right priorities. An athlete doesn't just show up to a game all out of shape and then suddenly try to dedicate themselves in the final few hours of competition, thinking that somehow that might make a difference. For really successful athletes, their skills are honed early and over time, not just months, but in many cases, years, years of self-control, years of making certain choices. I was thinking about this in terms of young married couples, uh, sort of at the beginning. Some of you here, maybe just for a few months, some of you for a decade, but you're still at the beginning, the beginning of your home, the beginning of your life together, the beginning of your parenting, the beginning of so many things. I've been thinking about that, especially in, in recent uh, months, as I've, I guess, grappled once again with people who are not at the beginning. People who I hear about, and I've seen it not just recently, but throughout all my days. I mean, people come to my office at some critical time in their lives. They suddenly have realized that the relationships between themselves as spouses has deteriorated. 
or they come and their kids are a source of grief and not of joy, and they bring them and they want, uh, they want us you know, to fix the problem, to, to add a few verses or give them a few assignments, and they go home and they do them, and that's going to take care, perhaps, of everything. I just heard of these sad situations recently where marriage has ended, and you hear the person telling the story, and most of it relates to recent events. But you realize that there were things along the way that undermined the marriage, going all the way back to the very beginning. Certain things were neglected. Certain things were not done. Or a parent I sat down with in a coffee shop not too long ago, who had tried to, you might say, coast through the formative years of the lives of their children with very little spiritual investment. And now their son has reached his teenage years and spent six months in jail for drug trafficking. And I hear the story and I hear all the details and they all have to do with recent events. But I realize that something went back to the very, very beginning. Both of these men were former pastors. They weren't peripheral, if you will, to the Christian life. They were both people who were, you might say, in the appearance of spiritual things. But something was missing. Something foundational. And certainly we understand the Lord can do anything, but just like an athlete, as I said, you don't show up the day of the game and suddenly try to make all the right choices, quickly do all the exercises and and then think that that's going to lead to success. You have got to lay the foundations early and you've got to see the dangers. You've got to understand what is important. And you have to do all of those things. You have to commit yourself to those things. You have to set the right kind of priorities. And that involves freeing yourself from all that bogs you down all that distracts you from what is important, all that floods and fills your life, that crowds out those things that are necessary, it involves, you might say, discriminating choices, weeding out the things that would flood out the spiritual. So I want to talk to you today just briefly about priorities. The beginning of your homes and your lives, the beginning of your parenting or whatever it might be, the beginning of your careers, building your life together, all of those things, it is vital that you understand now, right now, what it is to establish those right things, to set your mind on the right things, to pursue the right things. I'm talking about priorities. Of course, priority comes from the word prior, right? It comes from that which is ahead of, or that which is before. It comes before everything else, ahead of everything else. It precedes everything else. It is what comes first. It is what must be done before everything else is done. It is what uh, ultimately overrules certain things so that those are not done. It defines, it motivates. And if you get it, if you get priorities, everything else seems to fall in line with your life. And if you miss it, you stumble along the way, always longing for the sweet blessings of the gospel in your home, in your service to the Lord, whatever it might be, but you never quite experience it. Your life becomes disjointed. Your relationships become uh, chaotic you are exasperated by your schedule and your circumstances, and nothing seems to right or quite be working. So we have to determine to commit ourselves to those priorities. We have to determine to set those things in the first place. Move everything else out of our lives that would impede those and continue to press ahead into them. And to do that, I want to spend a little time this morning in the book of Ephesians, a brief little passage in Ephesians chapter 5. There are a number of places you could go, and, and we'll reference some of them, but this one, I think, uh, does an adequate job of breaking this down for us. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17, short little section, but full of tremendous truths. 
that are going to help us, we might say, in setting these spiritual priorities. Let me just read it for you. He says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Three little statements, we might say three little steps that we need to follow in developing biblical priorities. And the first one there in verse 15 is just simply discern carefully how you walk, or you might say examine carefully how you're walking. Paul is indicating that this, this kind of uh, walk in wisdom, this kind of setting of priorities, says it's not just something that that you stumble into, it's something that requires an examination of your life, a looking hard at the details, a checking out of your calendar, a checking out of your Facebook, and a time together with your spouse, talking about these things, talking about what's important and what is not, being open to that kind of scrutiny, both from within your own heart and even from those that are close to you. You don't want to skip this. You want to look carefully, consider, weigh in the balance, pay attention to your life, closely looking at it. Experiencing the blessings of the gospel doesn't, as I said, just happen. It comes by those who are looking carefully. It's unfortunate and Sad that many, many people around you don't do that. They just sort of are carried along. They are, they are sitting and allowing the world to dictate to them the way that they are supposed to live, the way they're supposed to walk. They're following along whatever fad, whatever trend, whatever impulse might be uh, arriving at the moment. And if they are lacking impulse, they turn on a video screen somewhere and they watch something to get an impulse. And so their whole life is governed by reaction, or in some cases, it's governed by whatever's going to bring the uh, next adrenaline rush, whatever's going to be the next exciting thing. And if they can't find excitement in their own life, if they can't find a wall to climb or a mountain to, uh, to, to conquer, they'll go and they'll find an alternate reality to experience. They will plunge themselves into a video game, or they'll plunge themselves into a uh, a, a device, a screen, they'll plunge themselves into any kind of virtual reality. It's easier and easier these days. The world is beckoning you in that direction. And all that stuff is just mindless reaction, being carried along by the world. Paul says you need to examine yourself, consider, give careful thought to all of these things. It doesn't stop. I mean, I'm not saying something that you do the first year of your marriage or just during your pre-marriage counseling. This is something that is constant. It's a discipline that you have to develop. I mean, it's something that, that uh, I am constantly having to do. My wife is constantly having to do. We're, we're seeing those areas where we have let things slide. We're talking about, you know, how uh, to get back together, to pray more together, to spend more time in the word, to be more engaged with the body of believers to whatever it might be. But examining yourself and constantly willing to make the change that's necessary. In fact, uh, it's interesting, the word, or the word Paul says there, look carefully then how you are to walk, because that is a reference to at least the verse right before that, he says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he's, he's picturing us as having this attitude or this approach to life that just sort of sleepwalks through life. And that's not something that's just particular to our time. That's something that he's saying is particular to every time. And so you have to make sure that you're not just sleepwalking, mindlessly going through the motions. You can do that. Everyone can do that. A pastor can do that. A pastor's wife can do that. Anybody can go through the motions and pretend for ever so long, however they're 
doing until the foundations begin to crack and crumble under the weight of your ungodly pursuits and your ungodly thinking. So it takes an examination how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you use your tongue, where you allow your thoughts to dwell, what your actions are doing, what you're not doing, everything. Evaluate, look carefully so that you can understand what is unwise and what's wise. All that sort of uh, develops, you might say, into the next point, which is the need to develop biblical or uh, you might say eternal priorities. The need to develop eternal or biblical priorities. And this is Paul's explanation in verse 16. What it means to discern this wise and unwise he defines as making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use. This is what it comes down to. It's examining what fills your time. Literally redeeming the time. It's a word for uh, buying back something. It was used, as you may know, frequently in the slave market for buying back or purchasing out of slavery Someone who had been in slavery. It was it was purchasing freedom or freeing someone up. So, so he's saying you need to do this with your time. You need to redeem it back from whatever is enslaving it. First of all, you need to recognize that it is being enslaved. You need to recognize that it is being taken up by whatever is being uh, pursued. You need to recognize that. Well, look carefully at what you're doing and then buy it back. Redeem it back. Bring it back, you might say, into submission to the Lord. There's a recognition, you might say, that someone is wanting to enslave your time. So no one's enslaving me. No one's me. I mean, I make all my own rules. Well, not really. Not really. Because as Paul says, the days are evil. The days are are evil. You might think that's a strange way to describe time or life or whatever it might be. Maybe a depressing way to describe the days. Maybe a kind of a conspiratorial way to think about life. But if you understand everything that Paul says, particularly in the book of Ephesians, you know exactly what he's saying. Back over in Ephesians 2, 2, Paul had talked about how we lived our life at one point, dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He, he talks about the, the course, which is really a word for cosmos. It is the word cosmos, I should say, which is a word for ordering. We use it for cosmetics, you know, people putting things in order. We talk about the order of the planets, the cosmos. But Paul's talking about here not the uh, inter- galactic world he's talking about the pattern of the of the times in which we live not even so much the physical world as much as it is the ideological world the world of values and all of those things that define what you do and he's saying that in this world and again the world is even the word aeon which is the word for an era or a time period he's saying that there are patterns there are systems that are governing our times and those things themselves are under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. That is of Satan himself. He's the prince of this world. Second Corinthians 4 calls him the God of this world. He controls the course of the thinking of this world. He controls its value systems. He controls what it pursues, what it weighs heavily, what it invests its time and its emotions and its money into. Even over in Ephesians 6, he talks about Satan's forces as cosmic forces over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this present time, he says, is a time of darkness. It's a time over which uh, Satan and his minions are influencing this present world. And of course... 
He's saying even there in Ephesians 6 that you need to realize that you're in a kind of a warfare, whether you want to admit it or not. You are waking up every day in a kind of a warfare. You are at war with Satan. His weapons are not physical weapons. They are deceptions. They are lies. They are falsehoods. They are emptiness and vanity. And he is in the business of drawing you in and enslaving you. Very similar to what we looked at a couple weeks ago in Romans uh, 13, where Paul says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but uh, not in quarreling or jealousy. So there again, he's using this language of warfare. And he's given the picture of a Roman soldier who is on the eve of battle and his soldiers were, uh, I guess you say, want to do. They participated in the night before in all kinds of revelries and drinking bouts and sexual promiscuity. And he's picturing a soldier who's done all of that and isn't waking up for the battle. He's not wanting to wake up. You might say he's still hung over. From all of the partying. And he has dulled his senses and he's unprepared for what he's about to face. The hour has come to wake from sleep, to put off the deeds of darkness, put on the spiritual armor, and to realize that he's in a battle. To realize that he's a soldier. And he's picturing the Christian life as people who don't realize that. They don't realize that they're in a battle. They are asleep, as just like Paul says. Another way to say that is life's not a party. It's a warfare. Life is not some endless stream and it's not intended to be some endless stream of entertainment. It's a warfare. It's a battle and you don't need to sleep. So in Ephesians 5, 16, Paul's telling us something very similar. Realize that the days are evil. Realize that the days are evil. I mean, it was evil in Paul's day. It's just as evil today. Maybe, maybe uh, we might say more accessible today than it ever has been. It's not just that there are a few evils, not really just that there are a few bad things that you want to watch out for. Not just a, a few images that you want to screen out. The whole era, this is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. The whole era, the whole world, as John says, lies under the sway of the evil one. Everything that is produced, everything that is pursued, it's all oriented away from God and in those senses towards that which is unprofitable and might even say evil. All the things that bombard you, all the things that clamor for your time, all the things that want to fill your days, they come with, with a, a subtle and sometimes imperceptible shift, an angle, cause you adjust your pathway ever so slightly and begin to take the small steps that may seem to be innocent right now at this point in your lives and your marriage, but they wind up being Something that leads you far, far down the pathway, the wrong pathway. I remember one time my wife and I were in uh, San Francisco. We'd taken a little trip up and we were going to drive back down to Los Angeles. And we had gone to church that morning in San Francisco and we had, had lunch with someone afterward. And so we set out about three in the afternoon. I think it was in the winter, so it was uh, uh, shorter days. We set out about three in the afternoon and we thought how lovely it would be to take the Pacific Coast Highway. It's a beautiful, I don't know if you've ever seen the Pacific Coast Highway, beautiful drive along all these steep, rocky cliffs, and you've got these cute towns along the way. So I remember we set out through, uh, is it Marina del Rey, and then driving down through Carmel, and we just thought, man, this is wonderful. This is lovely. This is just great. And we, never, we didn't really think through the whole thing. You know, it's about a five-hour trip on the interstate from San Francisco to L.A., maybe six hours. 
But on the Pacific Coast Highway, that's probably more like 12 hours. And so here we are just enjoying the scenery, not really thinking about, you know, all that stuff, just kind of taking in how fun it is to be driving along the PCH. And we get past, you know, the really uh, scenic stuff and we kind of get down uh, a little bit just out of the Bay Area and it's about 530 and the sun is setting, which was nice on the on the coast. But we learned that the Pacific Coast Highway is not well lit. And it's very, very curvy. And uh, what began as a lovely, scenic, beautiful ride quickly became a scary and wearisome and a tiresome pathway. And worse than that, we realized after we got just a couple of hours into it, there was no way to cut across to the interstate. I mean, we started to pull out map books to see if there's a dirt road we could take over the mountains because we realized what we've gotten ourselves into. There's no turning back. And it was a, as I said, a long, sad, tiresome night. That happens though, right? You kind of, kind of, you kind of just somewhere along the way, you take a subtle little turn and you're just kind of enjoying the scenery and life is fun and you're playing your games or whatever it might be. And you don't think about, hey, I need to be on that pathway. Hey, this is, might be nice scenery, but that, that pathway is going to get me where I'm going when I need to be there. And then suddenly you wake up and everything's dark and everything's twisted and everything's chaotic and it's scary. And those are sad days. They're sad days. When you have a couple walk into your office, you have a friend call you on the phone and say, it's all ending. It's all ending. She's leaving. The kids got arrested. They don't want to have anything to do with us, whatever it might be. And here you find yourself on that scary road because you took just a little detour you took just a small step, just a small deviation from wherever it was. You didn't set the right kind of pathway. You didn't set the right kind of priority. Paul's telling you, wake up, wake up, wake up to the world you live in. Wake up to the kind of darkness that's around you. Understand the spiritual battle. When you flip on that screen, when you boot up that computer, when you turn on that game, when you... Go out with those friends. When you make those associations. When you compromise that little bit at work. Wake up to what is going on around you. The days are evil. The prince of the power of the air is at work. And you are in warfare. And so what it takes for you is, is, is to see that, to dress yourself in the armor of light, to make the right kind of priorities, the right kind of choices. When you're bombarded with the images, bombarded with all the things that want to make you discontent, to long for another life, a fantasy life, a reality TV, a, a digital life, a vicarious life, and another world and people spend hours and hours and hours glued to their devices or playing their video games or staring at, at images on social media. And maybe because the movies that you look at or the images you're seeing aren't explicitly evil in your definition, you imagine it's all harmless, it's just pretty scenery, that you're just enjoying the ride right now. And yet it fills up and it robs you of valuable time away from the priorities, away from the things you ought to be doing with one another, with your children, most importantly with the Lord. It creates a dissatisfaction, a discontentment, sometimes even a frustration with what you Perceive now as your mundane, boring life and you just get 
lost more and more in the fantasies of these other things. You plunge yourself deeper and deeper into that. It kind of helped you forget the dissatisfaction that you might have with your current life. And when you're not watching it, you're thinking about it. When you're not playing your game, it's on your mind all the time. It's dominating you. When you're not watching your show, you're talking about it. You're posting about it. And you never really evaluate. You never stop to really think. Examine carefully how you're walking and what you're doing. Never realizing that it is the subtle shift of angles that has set you down a pathway that's going to leave you and your family far from God. It's undermining your life spiritually. And so you're like the soldier just partying all night long. You're like the athlete who's laying around forgetting that you have a race to run. And the few spiritual priorities in your life are being neglected. So the first step of this uh, developing of spiritual priorities is a close examination, a willingness to ask the hard questions, to engage in the kind of conversation, to have the input from your spouse who loves you, your parents who love you, those friends who love you, to have the input into your life that calls you back to where you need to be. It's that careful examination. Secondly, it's the developing of these eternal priorities. And thirdly, it's the distinguishing between God's wisdom and human wisdom. This is sort of that antithetical mindset. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish. Don't, don't give yourself over to foolishness. And take some time to learn to understand, investigate what pleases the Lord. Not so much what pleases yourself. As Paul says back in verse 10, try to discern what pleases or what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Continually testing, examining, learning, growing, processing what the will of the Lord is. It doesn't happen all the time. I mean, you're, you're not even fully grasping and understanding the lessons you've already been taught and you're being confronted with new challenges. New questions, uh, different things that you've never experienced as a couple, as a parent, and you're having to answer those things. And so there's just no shortage of need for you to develop the right kind of spiritual priorities. And you can't do it halfway. The Bible has this all over, this antithetical mindset, this idea that that the Fruits or the works of darkness have no fellowship with the works of light. There, there is to be this sort of this, this separation of ways. A definitive break with all that is the foolishness of the world. All that, all that might consume your time. And this kind of thinking, as I said, is on every page of the scripture. One commentator says people who study the Bible in depth develop antithetical mindsets. They think in terms of opposites and contrast. They think definitively and decisively about things and matters of spirituality. 1 Kings 18.21 How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Or Joshua 24 Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord, and the wicked are not so. Or Isaiah, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Or Matthew 7, there is a broad way which leads to destruction and many are going down it. And a narrow pathway and few there be who find it. Or James 4, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from that which is evil. 
friendship with the world is enmity with God. All over the scripture, you just see it over and over again, this antithetical mindset, this this need to make discriminating choices. What fellowship has light with darkness? It doesn't. So you've got to make these kinds of choices. You've got to discern these kinds of things. And it begins by studying his word. And once you've decided that you'll do that, once you've committed yourself to that, you study it, you dive deep into it, you focus on it, you listen to it, you fill your heart and mind with it, and you practice it over and over again, realizing you'll fail and you'll recommit yourself to it, realizing you'll disappoint and you'll ask for forgiveness and you'll move on. Once again, pursuing the Lord, drawing the lines, Weeding out that which comes from this present darkness. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. You understand when Paul says foolish, that's, that's a biblical terminology for the mind of an unbeliever. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The one who is a fool is one who lives like eternity isn't there. The one who lives like God isn't there. They rise each day to pursue what is merely in front of them. They don't walk by faith. They walk by sight. They rise each day to pursue what gratifies that particular day. They don't invest in eternity. So don't be foolish, whether it's parenting or business or finances or whatever it might be. Discern the will of the Lord. Give your heart and mind to that. Now, with all that said, and that's somewhat brief, really, from that passage, I wanted to, I thought it'd be helpful to just spend a few minutes thinking about priorities. You know, as I thought about this week, I was thinking through passages of Scripture, and I really thought it's not that difficult. I don't think it's really that difficult to know what the spiritual priorities are. It's Probably the more of the work is to wake up and recognize what they are not, what are all the things that fill your time that shouldn't be filling your time. I mean, here are several places in Scripture, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked, that will I seek. One thing, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire at his temple. One thing. So if you were just to stop right there, it'd be pretty clear, right? Just worship. Worshiping God. I mean, Paul, uh, John, excuse me, David. David is saying, look, if I could have one thing in life, it would just be to be at the house of the Lord. It would be to, to just be there together with him. I mean, everything else can go. Everything else can go. Just let me be there worshiping God. And so you might just begin by saying that, that priority number one is worship. Priority number one would just be worshiping God in whatever fashion you can get it. For David, obviously, he worshiped the Lord out in the fields with his uh, lyre, his his uh, instrument, he would sing and he would write songs, but he wanted to be there. He wanted to be worshiping the Lord in the temple, in the house of the Lord. And that's the priority. And it would seem to make sense if that's the priority, then it wouldn't be something that was occasional and it wouldn't be something that gets crowded out by everything else. Worship would be at the forefront. That would involve individual, personal time with the Lord each day. And if you have to say no to something, you would say no to it so that you can have worship. I'm not talking about just reading your, your devotional book or a few verses of scripture and sort of checking something off the list. I'm saying getting your heart engaged before the Lord. And I don't know how it works for you, but to me, it's not just a flipping a switch. Worshiping the Lord isn't just checking a box. Worshiping the Lord is something that sometimes just, just overflows out of my life. It's just I, I almost wake up out of bed. Worshiping the Lord, praying, thinking, singing. And there are other times it doesn't happen that way. Where I've got to really dedicate times. I've got to make choices to say, no, I'm going to stay here. In this text, in this passage, in this moment, I'm going to keep praying. 
Because I don't want to go through the day without connecting with God. Thanking Him. Recognizing the beauty of His holiness. And that would be one. Certainly worship. Philippians 3. Along those same kind of lines. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung, as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and might be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and might share in his sufferings, becoming like him, and that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now Paul knows as well as anyone that, 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 that those things he talked about, having a righteousness not of his own, and obtaining to the, retru- the resurrection of the dead, he, he, he understands as well as anyone that that is a moment in time, a declarative work where the Lord declares you righteous, and names you among the redeems and writes you in his book of life. He understands that. But he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing, Here's my priority. Here's the one thing that becomes comes before everything else. The one that is ahead of everything else. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal it to you. So here's Paul defining his priority. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to count everything rubbish. Everything else is rubbish. I'm just going to set it aside so that I can understand the gospel. And by the way, I don't understand it. Well, Paul, if you wrote it for us, I mean, you're the one who wrote all the books, right? And if you don't understand it well enough and you're going to lay aside everything so that you can understand it more deeply, I, I'm I guess it's safe to say that I should do the same. I'm going to pursue a deeper understanding of the gospel. I'm going to pursue a deeper understanding of the resurrection. I'm going to pursue the understanding of a walk with Christ. So you might say one is worship. The other is discipleship. One priority is worship. The other is discipleship. Being in some place or some role or some avenue where you are growing in your understanding of Christ and you're investing in that. We're not talking about just coming to a a Sunday morning service, but Paul said he, he just forgets everything and he presses and he presses and he presses. That's the one thing, he says, for him. Or Jesus, Matthew chapter six, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious for your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink, what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So here's Jesus' words. Set aside all that stuff as corrupting and, and uh, dying away and rusting. And set your treasures in heaven. Invest in the kingdom of God. Now that's comprehensive. I mean, that's that's uh, not only touches on obviously what you what you do with your money, but more importantly, just what you do with your heart. We might say that 
It might even touch on evangelism. You're going you're to invest in the kingdom of God. You're going to find ways to use your time wisely. Then you're going to be looking for ways to spread the gospel. You're going to be looking for ways to evangelize. You're going to be looking for ways to invest more deeply in the proclamation of the truth. You can do it by supporting missionaries. You can do it by, by engaging in that kind of a work. Priorities are, are fairly easy. Worship, prayer. I was thinking about Mark, uh, Mark chapter 2 or Luke chapter 4, where Jesus went out very early in the morning, Luke says, before everyone else got up. He went out into the mountain and prayed. It's pretty easy to see what was first in Jesus' life. What came first every day? Prayer. Spending time with the Lord. Pretty easy to see what ought to come first in our life. Prayer, worship, studying the scripture, scriptures, searching out the scriptures. We might say Christian fellowship as well. When the um, early church dedicated themselves to prayer, the apostles' doctrine, to fellowshipping, the breaking of bread. Those are the priorities. They're not hard. I mean, really, you don't have to search hard. The difficulty is not in discerning what you ought to be giving your time to. The difficulty is in discerning the subtleties that are draining away that time. And all of it made me think, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me at Luke chapter 10. We'll sort of end with this picture. All of it made me think of this vivid, vivid picture of priorities. Luke 10, verse 38. We read a story, a story that immortalizes two women. Now, as they went on in their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. But one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. He said, there's a there's an endurance there's a perpetuity to what Mary has chosen. It's not going to be taken away from her. Martha, it's interesting. Martha is not an unbeliever. She's not an evil woman. She loves the Lord. She believes in Jesus. But this is a story about priorities. She missed the priority. She filled up her life with what is unnecessary, busyness. She just assumed that um, this is maybe what you ought to do and she's busy serving and cooking the roast or whatever it might be. Just like we can get busy with good things. Things that are not explicitly immoral. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing immoral with what Martha was doing. It just wasn't the right priority. There's nothing wrong with your kids' uh, t-ball games. There's nothing wrong with tinkering on your gadget. There's nothing explicitly wrong with taking in a, a show every now and then. There's nothing wrong with so many of the activities that you might uh, engage in. But it's the busyness of them. When they begin to dominate your life so that it's something that you have to do every week or in some cases every day, And they just crowd out what is necessary. And the end result is what you see happening here. Frustration. Conflict. With those loved ones who are near you. Who are deviating maybe in their priorities from your priorities. And you're frustrated because you got all of these things that you set up. That you feel like that, that you want to engage in. You want to participate in. And they're not, they're not in it with you. And here's Mary. 
The one thing, Jesus says, that is necessary, she's chosen. She's chosen the good part. She's chosen the good portion. So my thoughts aren't complicated. I mean, I just thought how sad it is to talk to families and to realize that somewhere along the way they didn't make that choice. Somewhere along the way they didn't they didn't choose to spend time praying together. They didn't choose to spend time in church together. They didn't choose to spend time doing the work of the ministry together. They didn't choose to invest their money or their time, their heart in the right direction. They just sort of drifted. They could be right in the middle of church life and they still drifted. They just drifted from that first love and began to set up other things, pursue other things, hobbies, their entertainment, their gadgets, their games. That's my, that's my concern for you as young couples, that you not be one of those who turn up on the doorstep in a couple years and say, I, I don't know, I mean, my kids, they just don't, they don't listen, they don't respect, they don't do any of that stuff. And you can't fix that in one fell swoop. It's the little choices you make now. Or you wake up and say, she just doesn't seem to have any interest in me. And you can't fix that overnight. You've got to invest now with the right priorities. Setting aside that which is distracting and putting your eye on the prize, the goal, and pressing ahead towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for these reminders. These are the evaluations that we need. Look carefully how we walk. To think carefully about what we're doing. To give our time and our heart and our resources to those eternal things. I pray that you would help us to take that good, hard look. I pray that these couples would leave from this place and would have a conversation with one another, not rushed, not in passing, but in detail about the kinds of things that are taking up their life and their time. And I pray that they would reorient and reset their goals because the days are evil. Because the world is drawing them in, Lord. I pray that you would give them discerning hearts, discerning minds. Minds that are set on the kingdom and seeking it first. We pray these things in Christ's name.